I'm Alice Strange, and this is Magic in the Mind podcast, where spirituality and psychology intersect. Today, we are talking about Carl Jung and all the things that Carl Jung is and all the other really strange things that Carl Jung is. We'll discuss a little bit about his past, his history, and, and how that influenced him, but we will also focus later in the episode on what kind of staples we carry forward to this day that can be attributed to Carl Jung. And also, what is Jungian therapy, right? What is this therapy that's been around that long? Don't worry, I'll get your answers in here for you. All right, let's go. All right, everybody, quick disclaimer. There's a lot of information about Carl Jung out there. There is a lot. And I never really realized, but this man was just incredibly weird. So weird. Um, And I'm going to try not to spend too much time on his past, his history, his life growing up. Of course, I believe that's important and it's good to know kind of, you know, put things in perspectives, but also he, he was so weird and it's very entertaining to talk about how fucking weird this dude was. So Carl Jung, you know, (laughs) the fun, crazy guy. He was born in 1875. He died in 1961. My mom was alive in 1961. No, she was close, but it's really not that far away. Like I thought for some reason, I guess my personal information like told me he was much further in the past and that's not the case, but he lived in Switzerland and Basically, we know him as the founder of analytical psychology, and there are so many areas where his work is just, has been very influential, very critical for changes in those fields, and those are things like psychiatry, anthropology, archaeology, literature, philosophy, psychology, religious studies. I mean, this guy did so much, and and it was just... It was a lot. So let's let's get into that a little bit or get into his history so we can learn a little bit about what made this guy so different. So first let's talk about his parents. His mother was seen and my source uh, kind of g- gave this description. Um, She was seen as eccentric, but also was very depressed throughout a big part of Young's life. Um, She spent pretty much all her extra time in her bedroom, or all of her time in the bedroom. And she used to claim that she saw spirits in her bedroom, you know, ghosts and, and things like that.
And according to Young, she was, quote, normal during the day. But at night, she became unusual and mysterious. Interestingly enough, Young says, uh, or well said, that when he was around six years old, he saw a spirit exit her bedroom. Now, I did read his account of the story, um, and it was weird, uh, but I can't remember it exactly, and I just really feel like you need to hear this, this story for a second, um, so I'm going to look it up real quick. Give me a sec. Okay, I found it, and it's better than I remember. I am going to read this straight off the Wikipedia article, because whoever wrote it, it's hilarious. So, Young reported that one night he saw a faintly luminous and indefinite figure coming from her room with a head detached from the neck and floating in the air in front of the body. Period. Then it just says, Young had a better relationship with his father. <laughs> I just think that's like the funniest. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I crack myself up. But that that's what he saw. Just to finish up the section about Young's mother. She did often stay away at hospitals, presumably because she was very depressed. And her absence, along with the, the depression that was there when she was present, this caused Young to think of women as just innately unreliable. Just never, women are just kind of unreliable. That's sexist, but... His father was the son of a noted German-Swiss professor of medicine, and um, his father was a rural clergyman. Young was closer to his father than he was to his mother, and this made Young associate his father with reliability, but also powerlessness. And that's kind of sad. Young was quite the introvert, spent a lot of time alone, and um, we're getting a little bit even more into the weird stuff. In his young childhood, he believed that he had two personalities. Now, note, he was born in 1875. 1875 is pretty far back, um, and multiple personalities and stuff were probably... I don't know. You would think that would still be kind of a problem, but he believed he had two personalities. One was a modern Swiss citizen, which he called personality number one. And the other personality was more suited to the 18th century, and he called that personality number two. I guess he didn't give them names. So personality one was a typical schoolboy living in the area, the era of that time. And personality two was a dignified, authoritative, and influential man from the past. I do want to make the disclaimer that if you suffer from, or, you know, maybe you don't suffer, maybe 
you have and experience uh, disassociative identity disorder, I do not think you're weird. I do not have any problem with anybody who lives with those types of issues. Much respect for people like that. I don't know how I would handle a situation, so there's no bad blood there. I do not mean any offense by saying that Young was a weirdo. It's just kind of weird that a very small child would have a part of him that is a, an authoritative and influential man from the past. That's just kind of off to me. Um, but if you think that's normal, like, tell me about it. Please, please. You, say, you know, I'm always saying this, but like, send me an email to the podcast email. Like, I want to hear your story. I really do. Hi, this is Editing Alice. Um, I would like to say that I realize in that last section, I sounded like a pretentious asshole, and then I tried to apologize and make it better, and it just kind of made it worse. Um, but I'm real, so I'm going to leave it in the episode. But I am here now to say what I was trying to convey was that any person who lives with dissociative identity disorder, you are valid. I, I see you and there's no, there's no trying to mock or poke fun at anybody um, in, this, in this podcast. I'm really just trying to explain and, and show all the different facets of a particular person while including a little bit of humor. And when I said that this was weird, he was a weirdo, and all those things, I didn't really do a very good job of explaining. But the way my brain pictures this happening is that you have a regular, normal kid, just a little boy kid, six, seven, eight, something like that. And maybe, I don't know, I'm just guessing. But then all of a sudden he could just suddenly become a very authoritative and influential and like just very much an adult. Like, why was it that a boy who was so young could just turn into an adult. And I know that is the reality for some people. I know that some people do have personalities uh, that are protectors and they take on different ages than what they are in their physical presentation. My whole point being the idea of a very small kid suddenly becoming a very wise and older person, adult, rings a little weird to me. And maybe that's just my own problems that I need to fix. Maybe that's a little bias in me. Um, if, if this hits you, if, if you know anything about DID, if you have DID, hit me up. Just, just hit me up, let me know, 
what did I do wrong and how can I make it better? I would love to, to talk to you, each and every one of you, about that. So, moving on. Okay, sorry for that quick break. We will get back to talking about how freaking weird Carl Jung was as a child. So, as a child, Carl Jung carved a tiny wooden doll, like a, like a doll, like a little wooden thing, into the end of a wooden ruler. He carved it. I don't know how young he was when, when uh, I don't know what age. I guess young is kind of a weird word in this context. I don't know what age he was at when he was able to carve a doll from a ruler. Just sounds difficult, I guess. Anyway, he took this doll and he placed it inside a pencil case. A case for pencils. He also, in this pencil case, put a stone that he had painted into upper and lower halves of the stone. Okay, they're all in the pencil case together. Um, he then hid that pencil case in the attic of his home. And he would return often to the doll, the wooden doll, and he would bring little pieces of paper with like messages written on them in his own secret language. That's what they're saying. That's what the people who are the experts are saying. He had his own secret language, which I don't know why that wasn't addressed separately somewhere, but he's a kid and he's writing notes to a doll he carved out of a ruler and, and writing little letters and sticking them in. That's, that's so odd. Anyways, later, reflecting back on this little thing that he used to do, he called it a ceremonial act. He says it brought him a feeling of inner peace and security. Can we take a moment to appreciate how fucking sad that is? Like, this, this child needed so much more peace and security than he had in his home that he made a literal wooden doll to, like, worship. Like, that's weird. Also, as an adult, he realized that this little ritual that he did was super, super similar to a lot of indigenous cultures, which that realization there kind of went on to fuel his ideas about symbols and archetypes and the collective unconscious, etc. So moving forward, he's about 12 years old now, okay? I told you this is long. Just trust me. <laughs> just, just hang in there. So at 12 years old, he had an accident. He fell, hit his head, lost consciousness momentarily, and I think while he was unconscious, he heard the words, now you won't have to go to school anymore. Like, he heard in his, someone said that, but it wasn't like out loud. He heard it in his head. And after that accident, any time Young tried to study or even just like walk to school, he would faint. Just faint. He, uh, he ended up staying home for six months. Just, like, not going to school 
because of this weird fainting thing. But one day he overheard his father talking to someone and his father was very worried about Young's future because they thought he had epilepsy. They thought he was having seizures rather than just fainting. And his father was very concerned about that. That sounds like a normal kind of thing to be concerned about. But this led Young to realize his family's poverty was a big deal. And he began studying a lot of his father's work. He says that he fainted about three more times after making the decision to commit to studying, but he did eventually overcome it. And he was quoted saying that this period in his life is, quote, when I learned what a neurosis is. And a quick little definition of like old-timey language, neurosis is basically what we call psychological trauma today. So he was saying he was traumatized. That That's when he found out what it was like to have trauma in his life. Fucking sad. Again. Okay. That was pretty much all we're going to talk about as far as when Young was a child, a boy. Moving on, we will talk about his studies, his studying, and his early career. I will say in my show notes, I did not write down exactly what it was he studied, what kind of degree he got, or where he got it from, but, but it was definitely weird stuff. Young's dissertation was published in 1903, and it was based on the analysis of the mediumship, supposed mediumship, of Young's cousin, which was influenced by Theodore Flournoy. Um, I don't know how to pronounce that. I probably butchered it. Super sorry, guys. But this Theodore Flournoy, (laughs) um, he was a professor and an author of books about spiritism. So, like, spiritual things, religious things, and, like, philosophical, like, doctrine. That's what spiritism means in this context. And he also was an author on a lot of books about parapsychology, such as the study of psychic abilities and phenomenon, including intuition, telepathy, premonitions, clairvoyance, telekinesis, near-death experiences, synchronicities, and seeing spirits. So we do know that Jung was aware of spirits and did believe that spirits exist. And this is about the time that Jung started studying Freud's work. Freud, as we will learn, also was very influential too young. Young looked up to him. Then in 1900, he worked at a psychiatric hospital and over time at this hospital moved up to what they called a permanent senior doctor. And in 1909, he left that place and went to start a private practice back home where he was from. So as I said, Young was studying Freud's work, and he was a big fan. So 
1906, Young sent Freud a copy of his book or paper or whatever titled Studies in Word Association. And later, he also sent a copy of Diagnostic Association Studies, the title being, to Freud. But Freud had already purchased a copy of this writing. I really apologize for any little click clacking. Um, we moved to a new house and there's hard floors and my dogs uh, just want to keep walking up and down the whole house and click clacking the whole way. Here comes another. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I will try to minimize that. So in 1907, these two men met and Young recalled their conversation as spanning for 13 hours. I don't even like to stay awake for 13 hours at a time. That is a lot. Uh, I'm a talker. I can talk a lot. 13 hours is impressive, though. That's, that's impressive. Anyways, six months later, Freud and Young began officially collaborating on studies and things like that. As I said, this was in 1907, and then six months later, they started collaborating. In 1910, Freud called Young, quote, his adopted eldest son, his crown prince and successor, end quote. And Freud gave him the position of lifetime president of the newly formed International Psychoanalytical Association. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty special. <laughs> Saw him as a son, his adopted son and his crown prince and successor. That's so dramatic and I kind of love it. Um, but yeah, gave him the position of lifetime president and that's, that's special, I would think. I would think that's very special. But all good things must come to an end. There came a point where Young was writing a piece about libido and tensions began to rise up between him and Freud around the nature of libido and its function, among other things. As we all know, Freud is the guy who thinks everything is run by sex. <laughs> like weird stuff, okay? Freud, Freud was weird when it came to the sex stuff. And Jung kind of saw that. He kind of challenged that. He de-emphasized sexual development and libido and focused more on the collective unconscious. He felt that libido was an important part of personal growth, but didn't agree that it alone was responsible for the formation of a person's personality. That sounds a little bit more on track for me. Other disagreements between the two of them involved how they viewed the unconscious. Jung saw Freud's theory of the unconscious incomplete and unnecessarily negative and also lacking flexibility. 
Freud basically believed that the unconscious was just a big collection of repressed emotions and desires. But Jung, he didn't disagree completely, and their thoughts overlap to an extent, but Jung talked about the personal unconscious. And Jung defined the personal unconscious as an ongoing process rather than just a static model. The personal unconscious is made of things that were once in our conscious awareness, but have faded from consciousness through either being forgotten or repressed. And Jung also proposed the existence of a second overarching form of the unconscious beyond the personal and Jung also proposed the existence of a second overarching form of the unconscious beyond the personal unconscious called the psychoid there are a lot of things that he put into words that no one else had before and we use a lot of those things today in many areas of our lives but the psychoid is not one of them. It, it generally, it's just too out there. It's too hard to even conceive. Because, you know, even now, it's not a widely known topic or, or thought, idea, because it is essentially defined as that it's unable to be reached by consciousness and is ultimately unknowable. So basically, he put a word, he made a word for, for whatever it is out there that we can't even grasp in our little human pea brains, basically. And that's so, so conflicting, because if you can't, if it's ultimately unknowable, if you can't even consciously perceive it, how do we have a word for it? I mean, I, I don't, I don't get it really, but that's probably why it's not very popular among people to talk about and to, to just kind of dive into this weird thing for a minute. The psychoid archetype basically has like three identifiers and first it is inaccessible to consciousness. So, like, you can't really just make your brain think about it, I guess. But there's still the unconscious, right? So, there's that. Second, it's... Second, it's located between the psychological and the physiological. It combines or transcends both. But the third and most significant aspect involves the relationship between a person's psyche and the physical world beyond that person's body. That's all the information I got, guys. Uh, super weird. Maybe you are interested in the psychoid and you want to do a deep dive. Cool. Have fun. Uh, live it up. <laughs> but for me, that's all the information I need. So all of these tensions around Jung and Freud really came to a head, I guess, 
around 1912. So in 1912, basically Freud and Jung were working together, doing conferences, doing visits, and they were going overseas. They were in America, they were in Europe, and they were doing lots of, of speaking pieces. But in 1912, I can't, I can't just overlook it, okay? Jung got really pissed that Freud visited a friend that was nearby where Jung was at the time, and Freud did not come and visit Jung. And Jung literally titled this, the name of the city he uses in the title, I can't pronounce that, uh, it's German or something, I don't even know. Uh, no, I cannot pronounce that. So he, but he, just trust me on this, he titled it as the, insert name of city, gesture. He titled this incident in his life. That's so weird. <laughs> but, you know, they were doing speaking things still, and, and Young kept pressing forward on his view of the libido, and... Basically, when he published Psychology of the Unconscious, that, in Jung's words, cost him his friendship with Freud. So, Jung and Freud were not getting along. Freud and Jung met for the last time in person in September 1913. Uh, there was a big speaking event and Jung was doing a lot of, of uh, starting new things and, and big ideas that we're going to talk about later. He made analytical psychology a little bit of a name for itself. But in 1912, when he published Psychology of the Unconscious, that that is what really led to freud stepping away and and no longer being in young's life they did exchange letters that um showed that freud would just not he would not he refused to even consider young's ideas and this was a really big rejection to young and it it kind of really, it really hurt him. Um, and he did an autobiography, I guess. Uh, and in this autobiography, he talked about how it happened and, and how it, it affected him. But essentially everyone he knew just fell away. He had two colleagues that did not. He, he had two people, but he basically lost all his friends. I mean, they were colleagues, they were, you know, people he was working with, but, but those were his people. And, and I think we can all kind of relate to the idea of someone at one point telling us we we're like their adopted son the 
the person that I've been waiting for all my life to, to come along and just bless me with their, you know, people can be really special to someone at one point and then that person can turn around and just reject you and like can I get a fucking ouch seriously that's a hard hard thing to go through and you know it was a long time ago a lot of people like to look at things like this very uh, technically and not very emotionally but I think this was emotionally quite upsetting it's important to recognize that Young suffered in this situation. So that really led to, you know, losing Freud and, and, you know, having all of his ideas rejected. The one person who was his person, that, that pain led to a period of isolation. And starting in 1913, uh, Young was 38 years old. And he experienced, as he called it, a horrible, quote, confrontation with the unconscious, end quote. He saw visions, he heard voices, he worried at times that he was, quote, menaced by a psychosis. That's, that's, those are some funny words in that order. Or, or he also called it, um, doing a schizophrenia. He was worried that he was doing a schizophrenia. I can't make this up, guys. I can't make this up. It's so goddamn funny. It's so fun. I don't care. I don't care if that offends you. Doing a schizophrenia. Like, okay, that's funny. I'm sorry. Maybe we just different have different types of humor. Or maybe you're laughing along with me. Either way, that that little nugget was worth all the studying and research I had to do for this podcast. Thank you very much. So while he was worried he was doing a schizophrenia, uh, he thought it was a valuable experience all in all. And in private, when he was alone, he would induce hallucinations through a process of active imagination. And he recorded everything he experienced in many, many small black journals. And Young went on to refer to these writings in these journals as the black book. And considered it a single integral whole. Meaning not a bunch of separate little black books. No, these were the black book. Okay, whatever. We've heard weirder from him, right? So, he eventually, in 1915, uh, commissioned a special red leather-bound book and transcribed all of his notes, along with the paintings, into it over the course of 16 years. I do believe there's somewhere you can go, uh, you could probably purchase the the black book or, or the version with the paintings. So to kind of review and summarize, Young's thoughts were very much influenced. They were, they were formed by his early life experiences he had with key family members. His maternal side included a lot of 
involvement and interest in occult practices. His paternal influences included his grandfather, who was Carl, with a K, Carl Gustav Jung, who was a physician and an academic scientist. So we can kind of see how Jung got into the area that he did, even with all the weirdness. Or maybe because of it. Who knows? Maybe scientists are just like, you gotta be weird. I don't know. And while Jung was a practicing clinician and also a writer and founded analytical psychology, he did spend a huge part of his life exploring so many other things. Things he studied include quantum physics, Eastern and Western philosophy, including epistemology, sociology, astrology, alchemy, and vitalism. If you want to know what vitalism is, go ahead and give that a Google. Um, it's just vitalism, just like it sounds. I really did try to pin down a good definition for this podcast on that one. It didn't happen, um, and it's not going to. So if you're interested in just not understanding anything someone's saying about a term, go look that up. Otherwise, I'm going to continue here with some key terms or you know, with some ideas that were coined by Young. So one of the things Jung really relied on in his writings, in his beliefs, is the belief in archetypes, um, which if you don't know what an archetype is, it is kind of a universal inherited idea or a pattern of thought or an image that is present in a collective unconscious of all human beings. Archetypes are thought to be the basis of many of the common themes and symbols that appear in stories and myths and dreams across different cultures and societies. There's also the idea that archetypes change as time goes on. You know, the, the examples they gave for common archetypes were things like the shadow and the wise old man or the maiden. Those, yeah, back then, sure, that's probably the archetypes they had. But nowadays, I mean, the shadow being like shadow work, shadow self, the, the inner, deeper unconscious, like that's obviously still a thing. But rather than the wise old man, we kind of nowadays see it as like a wise woman, like that weird witch that just lives on the edge of society in a weird cottage. It's my dream one day to become that witch. But the crone. Um, and actually, if we want to kind of slip a little bit more into the spiritual side of things, the mother, maiden, and crone, all three of those are archetypes that do repeat themselves through different cultures and different places and 
it's it's quite interesting. Many people will look at the major arcana of the tarot as a whole just set of archetypes. And I think that's pretty appropriate. The fool. That that one comes to mind. The fool. The young and excited and very naive but very adventurous and and willing to put in the work and take the risk and and go on an adventure like yeah we see that all the time the fool is definitely an archetype what about the hermit the hermit is definitely an archetype that kind of falls into the wise woman or the wise old man you know that's the same archetype as the hermit and most likely the reason we have so many gods and goddesses that are very similar to other gods and goddesses in other cultures is because they are an archetype. They are representing an archetype. And that's really just all Jung was about. Like, the collective unconscious, we all have this archetype made up, you know, because we're human and we share an unconscious system. It, it gets really deep really fast. So, interesting for sure. So moving on from there, we can look at the terms anima and animus. Now, Jung described the animus as the unconscious masculine side of a woman, and the anima as the unconscious feminine side of a man, each transcending the personal psyche. So unlike the divine masculine or divine feminine that spiritual type people are familiar with, this describes a trait common to the opposite sex being found in your subconscious. So for example, a man can feel sensitive, which is normally a female trait, because of the anima. Definitely weird, uh, but for the times, sure. Then, of course, we have the collective unconscious that Jung talked about so much. And that was defined by Jung as being the unconscious mind and shared mental concepts encompassing the soul of humanity at large. Very much made up of instincts, but as well as archetypes. And it helps to explain why similar themes occur in mythology around the entire world. I don't have to explain this one, but Jung was the person that came up with the idea that some people are introverts and some people are extroverts. I guess I didn't know that needed to be invented, but it was. Jung did it. Individuation. Now, individuation is a process where the individual self develops. It's a developmental psychic process where the unique elements of a personality, the personality of the person, pieces of the immature psyche, and experiences of the person's life become fully integrated into a well-functioning whole, into one person being present, I guess, in, in all of what they are made of, so to speak. 
Another thing Jung talks about is a persona. And to him, that meant a mask a person wears while they're being social. And it is designed on one hand to make a definite impression upon others, but also on the other hand to conceal their quote, true nature, the, the individuals, basically the shadow material that people don't want other people to know. That's why you would wear this persona, wear this mask. Young also came up with a particular group of psychological types. And these psychological types are similar to, and probably the precursor to today's Briggs-Meyer personality type thing. You know, everybody knows their personality type with the little letters and stuff. That's the same idea. Young came up with his own version of that before it was done by anybody else. And of course, if we're talking about Young, we can't just not talk about the shadow, the shadow self, while this is a very key part of witchcraft. I didn't expect Carl Young to be the one who identified it. A little strange to me, but I guess the whole learning process about who Carl Young was, everything included, was weird. Anyway, the shadow self was defined as um, an unconscious aspect of the personality that we find wrong or shameful or undesirable, anything like that. And that leads the ego to really resist and usually project that shadow. Modern times today, when we look at shadow work and things like that, what is labeled as the shadow, they're generally things that are found undesirable in a person. But for young, this included any part of the self that is hidden, even positive pieces of yourself, which does make sense. I don't know why shadow would be the word for good parts of you, but you know, whatever, young, go off. Jung also talked a lot about the self. Jung found that to be the unification of consciousness and unconsciousness in a person. That includes the psyche as a whole and is made possible by integrating all parts of a person's personality. So, you know, if you integrate your shadow, if you integrate all of those things, um, your experiences and who you, your DNA, that, that is the self. That is the self. Makes sense to me. And another thing Young came up with is the idea of synchronicity. That one surprised me. I think of synchronicity as being kind of a modern type idea that, you know, you receive messages from somewhere higher or somewhere else outside of your own self through synchronicities. And I'll stumble through this awkward <laughs> definition that I was given. But when Jung talks about synchronicity, it usually is referring to circumstances that to the person appear meaningful and related but actually lack a very like kind of 
casual connection. They don't really go together in any particular way to anyone except for the one person or, you know, who that synchronicity was aimed toward. And synchronicities are a person's subjective experience. And that connects the events in a person's mind with something in the outside world. So synchronicities really are just based on subjective experience of a person and how something completely unrelated to them or in the external world somehow connects with something in your mind to, to mean a certain thing. They may be appearing to everyone else to have no connection, but to that person they have some other kind of spiritual meaning behind them. I probably didn't have to include the definition of synchronicity, but this was an awkward one and I thought it was kind of funny. We are now officially stepping into the part of this episode regarding modern usage of Carl Jung and his studies and his ideas that contributed to psychology as well as many other things. So we talked about individuation. Jung came to believe that individuation is the healthiest spiritual quest and one of the most beneficial things to do for yourself. Individuation, basically trying to become more and more fully and truly who we are, essentially. This is a process of becoming more and more conscious of our unconscious motivations and is a lifelong process that can be followed along through many different paths. Here's a little quote for you about individuation. Individuation means becoming an individual, meaning the word in and individual being separated by a hyphen. Individual. Anyway, and insofar as individuality embraces our innermost, last, and incomparable uniqueness, it also implies becoming one's own self. We could label individuation as coming to selfhood or self-realization. Young went as far as to say a religious path could be dangerous in a way because seeking spiritual fulfillment can lead to fundamentalism, which is the opposite of individuation because it requires a belief in a single, unchanging truth given by some kind of authority external to the person, the individual, rather than being an evolving truth dependent on the psyche of the individual searcher. Jung really saw that to be fulfilled and to be all of you, your whole self, you should work toward your whole self being integrated. And that would be a truly fulfilling path rather than religion, in his opinion. And 
Because of this, Young saw that for some people, the structure of a church was a psychic block. It, it just cut off all connection to anything psychic in them. And he was very content to end sessions with patients who returned to or joined a religious community. He would just, okay, nope, not anymore, sorry, bye. That's kind of a thing that would get you in trouble nowadays, but, you know, since it happened so long ago, we just see it as quirky, right? Anyways, he had been accused of being elitist because he would often say that the path of individuation is not for everyone, but clinical experience kind of suggests that he was right. He was being realistic. It really isn't for everybody. Now, these couple points following what I just said, they're paraphrased, but I they're really well put. So I'm kind of just going to read them to you. To teach someone to not rely on the judgments of a god who tells them what to do in every aspect of their life with the promise of salvation if all of those rules are obeyed, that's an undertaking that is only possible if the person has enough, quote, ego strength, basically, or what we would know today as willpower. That person would need the willpower to sustain themselves and to comfort themselves if they break one of these rules and not fear eternal punishment. Essentially creating their own psychic structures outside of that religious community. And for some people, this just is not possible. Sometimes it just isn't. And with those kind of people who aren't meant for individuation, an attempt to live a more fulfilling spiritual life and, and take that path is likely to lead to severe breakdown of the present psychic structures, but with nothing to put in their place. This is a very interesting and very true kind of thing even today. If you think about it, I know I came from a very Christian background, a very strict Christian background, and I was always taught that I was wrong, I was bad, I was evil, I was not enough, I was only going to heaven through God's grace, and only good enough for that because he chose to kill his son once rather than every human ever, every time. And that's a big fear. If, you know, if you are, are taught this your whole life and it's something you truly believe, it can be hard to think not just differently, but entirely the other way around. And... For me, Christianity never really rang true. Christianity wasn't really 
my thing and it never was. So coming to a self-led spiritual path was probably easier for me than it would be for others. And I think if you started to break apart that religious belief, like those things that they had, that person had been brought up on their whole entire life, that could be detrimental to a person. They're taking away their beliefs, but also that's how they support themselves. They also pray to God for support. And if God is just not there or not who you are going to listen to, that could really mess someone up in the head for sure. Yeah, so those are some things that really hold true and, and have lasted through the years, the decades. And some therapists even today still use Jungian therapy. It is said that it can be helpful for many issues such as depression and anxiety or building self-esteem because it focuses on the whole person, not just their symptoms. You're not looking at the things that are going wrong. We're looking at the whole person. And if a person doesn't really find much success with other types of therapies, Jungian therapy may be considered an option for a person such as that. Some things that are usually part of this type of therapy include active imagination or dream analysis or art or even word association. And after reading about this type of therapy, I realized that I have very often with different therapists touched on Jungian therapy techniques. And I will give a personal example. I went to see a therapist. She, she actually was a master level student getting ready to graduate. And she was doing her practicum clinic, which is basically training to be a therapist, but you're working out of a clinic of sorts that is just for practicing master level students, you know, to fit so many hours in to pass and become an official licensed therapist. She was a sweet woman and I do remember her fondly, but there were some things, I, I guess maybe I'm just come off as a more creative type person. Usually people intuitively or with context clues can pick up that I'm very creative, very out of the box, very visualization kind of person. It's just kind of how I am. So I was going through a particularly rough time, a very hard time in my life. So my therapist would ask me what my internal house felt like, as in if my inner world was a house, what it was like being in that internal house. And as I said, it was a very difficult part of my life. I was going through a lot. I had not been to therapy in a long time and I was in a situation severe enough that I felt like I had to go back. So when I would describe this internal house, I would say things such as it was dark and cold 
and I'm just feeling around. I can't see. I don't know where I'm going. I'm very lost. I'm very afraid. I'm very lonely. I would describe sitting on the floor, a bare dirt floor, with my arms around my legs, not being able to see anything, and being very, very alone. And I found that when I was having a hard time describing what exactly it was I was feeling on the inside, this creative and metaphorical exercise really helped to encompass those emotions. It is said that Jungian therapy tends to be most effective for people who are very interested in self-exploration and personal growth because it really deals with exploring the subconscious and learning about your inner self, which often sometimes can lead one to feel more in control. There are so many different diagnoses that are sometimes treated with Jungian therapy. Of course, we have depression and anxiety type things, obsessive compulsive disorder, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it, even phobias and personality disorders, and psychosomatic illnesses. And you know, it wouldn't be a psychology episode if I didn't give you a statistic. So, a 2013 study of the effectiveness of Jungian therapy showed significant improvements in the level of symptoms, interpersonal problems, and altogether personality structure. So when people had done the therapy, they had gone through it, whatever, I don't know the parameters set, but when they had gone through Jungian therapy, their symptoms were better, interpersonal problems were better, and personality structure in general. All of those things improved with Jungian therapy. These improvements were found still in place. They, they really stuck around for a period of up to six years. And that's kind of, that's kind of a big deal. I think it's pretty impressive that for up to six years, people still had these improvements. A lot of time when you do therapy and, and you improve and you really have worked on yourself and then you stop going to therapy, you kind of backslide. You don't really always stick it out. You, you don't always keep those practices because no one's really holding you accountable. There are lots of reasons for why that happens and I, we won't go into that, but there was even evidence in addition to all of this that in some cases there were more improvements after therapy ended after they did the therapy and improved they continued to improve without the therapy that's incredible in my opinion so i i guess i'll say if you feel like jungian therapy would benefit you you can try to find a therapist who's qualified to practice it and what i was able to find is that the international association for analytical psychology or iaap 
that would be a good place to start. They will have information on that. And I will probably put a link to them in the description of the episode. And that's about it for us, guys. Did a nice little deep dive on a very interesting man. (laughs) I feel like his life is just almost a little too crazy to be real. And, And that's hilarious to me. I hope you all enjoyed that. I hope there there were entertaining moments, moments that made you scratch your head a little bit and think about. I sure did. And you know, that that's that's what we're here for, to learn and to wonder and to be curious. So, remember, I'm Alice Strange and this is Magic in the Mind podcast. May you always be well. Be kind. And may your curiosities for this world never fade. Bye.